Amen. Whew. Good morning. I tell you what, y'all should start a choir or something. That's pretty good. You're, you're on the list, Chris. Um, hey, week three, sexual wholeness. Let's get into it. If you are here, if, if this is your first Sunday, we've been talking about sexual wholeness for three weeks. I said this last week. I want to say it again. It is really important the first two Sundays that we talked about. Those topics like kind of are foundational that will lead to what we're talking about this week. This was not the focus of the series. This is just going to be something we talk about. We started by talking about sex before sin, that it predates sin and God had some idea about it that was rooted in this total total uh, intimate oneness, and it was this beautiful thing that we need to understand that that is the foundation. We need to understand that on some level, like there is no sexual expression that doesn't fall short of the perfection that God created us for. Week two is, well, what do we do with that? Since we fall short, how does Jesus engage with us in our sexual brokenness? And that leads to week three, uh, where we're going to talk about other people's sexual brokenness. But those first two weeks are really relevant. Next week, we're going to go back to the book of Acts and mercifully not talk about sex for a few weeks. There's surprisingly little sex in the book of Acts. I don't know if you've read it, but it doesn't come up much. Um, <laughs> but today, the day we've all been waiting for, we finally get to stop talking about our own issues and talk about everybody else's issue. Come on, we're going to talk about... <laughs> finally, whew. I'm going to talk about uh, other people's sexuality, what to do about it today. I want to say a couple of things as caveats before we dive in. First, this. We understand that the growth of our spiritual maturity is largely growth of humility, right? So the closer we get to God, the more aware we are of our own sin and the more aware we are of his constant and abundant grace for us, right? So you'll find as people walk with Jesus over a long period of time, they become less concerned about policing others' behavior and more concerned about connecting people to the incomparable grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is kind of how we view spiritual maturity. And so if we have a relatively clear picture of God's ideal for sexuality and understand we all fall short, but we are also rigorously committed to I interacting with God on our own issues, then and only then should we try to help someone else with theirs. And I'm not saying that because I'm worried that we'll offend someone. I'm saying that because this is really important. If we are not constantly interacting with God and listening to his voice to speak to our sexual brokenness, then when we try to help someone else, we will inevitably hurt them because we won't know what his voice sounds like. And we might wind up saying things or pointing them in directions that actually don't sound like God because we haven't done the work ourselves to hear from him. So that's why we have to do it. This does not mean we have to be perfect to speak to anyone else about their sexuality. It does mean we have to ourselves be journeying on this issue. And we have to have a level of transparency about our own struggles um, if we're going to talk to others about theirs. I, I just I want to remind us of this again and again and again. As the church, as Christians, what gives us credibility in the world is not the brilliance of our ideas. Uh, that's not what Jesus said. What gives us credibility in the world is our love one for another, the humility with which we walk into this journey. So we're the ones who know God's standard is perfection. We all fall short. There's really no room for much outside of kindness from us on this because we realize we're in this thing together. So that's one caveat. Another thing I want to just point out here, um, you know, uh, 
I just want to acknowledge this in a room like this, even though most of us probably like Jesus, try to follow him with our lives. We are going to have some conflicting opinions about issues of sexuality. Of course we will. What do we do with those when they arise? Well, at the end of the day, I think we're not going to resolve all of those today. Uh, we will have to apply the words of Paul in Romans 14.1, who said, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And what he's saying there is really quite brilliant. He's saying God is working on all of us, and yet he's not working on all of us in the same way or at the same pace, right? So we're all at different points with God, and there may be moments where we find something where we're in disagreement with someone else, and he says, in that moment, what should we do? We should accept one another. The word he uses there is receive them as your own. So we might disagree, and we might have a hundred verses we want to throw at each other to convince one another of our position. We just need to make sure that one of the verses we're throwing out there is this one, Romans 14.1, so that it lands in our hearts so that we can receive each other even when there's a disputable issue as issues of sexuality most surely will be. So that's where we need to start. That's where we need to end today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the substance of this. God, we come to you, um, we need your wisdom. We need your wisdom to navigate our own sexuality, to navigate relationships with other broken people. But we recognize this, that to receive your wisdom requires humility. And so God, we humble our hearts, we open ourselves to what you would say. Would you speak to us in a way that each one of us will know is unmistakably your voice? In Jesus' name, amen. So, here's the question. How do we relate to people who have sexual sins or issues and brokenness that we believe is problematic? I'm going to say something. Um, it's so simple and it's so profound. It is going to blow your mind. <laughs> Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Some of you are ready. Okay. So what do we do with someone who views sexuality differently than we do? Here it is. Here it is. We should treat them like Jesus would. Is that just mind-blowing and so simple and freeing? I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Jonathan, you took the easy way out. Jesus... That's the easy way out. But what I want to do today is walk that out in a way that is very concrete. Because the question we should ask is this, how would Jesus relate to someone who is maybe struggling with sexual sin or has issues or issues of brokenness in their life about their sexuality or someone who just sees sexuality differently than he does, which when you think about it was literally every person he came across on earth, right? Every person on earth saw sexuality in a way different than the perfect, holy, only son of God would have seen it. So the question is, what, what did he do to relate to people like that? And uh, as it turns out, we have three stories. 
We looked at these three stories last week where he's interacting with someone with sexual brokenness. I want to actually talk about those stories again this week. Only last week, remember, we were looking at Jesus and we were picturing ourselves as the sexually broken person so that we could receive the way he would minister to us. This week, I want to flip it and I want us to picture ourselves as Jesus and learn the remarkably practical approach that he had with sexually broken people. And I know Uh, It's a little lazy to preach on the same passages two weeks in a row. Um, That's all right. Just go with me on this. There's something important for us to see. Uh, Here's what I want us to do. This will help as we read these stories. I want you to picture in your mind uh, someone who has a sexual issue that you find problematic. All right? Just someone who has a sexual issue that you find problematic. Now, I, I, I want to ask that if, if possible, it's an actual person. I think our tendency with something like this is we t- talk a lot about hypothetical people. I don't want us to think that way. Today, I want us to think about an actual person. So it could be a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, but someone who you look at them and you're like, well, they're they're clearly sinning, or maybe they're believing the wrong things, or maybe they're just suffering because of something that was done to them. They were violated in some way, and they're dealing with the pain of that. The question is, as a believer, how do we treat them like Jesus does? You have someone? Someone in your mind. Okay, I want us to observe what Jesus does in story number one from Luke 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I don't have time to get into it, but the connotation here is sexual sin. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, so how do we treat people who are sexually broken in our life? A couple of obvious ministry principles out of this story. First, Jesus saw her as a whole person when no one else did. He saw her as a whole person. Every other person, everyone in that room, saw her sexuality first. That's what they saw. Jesus did not. He saw all of her. 
So I, I think one of the applications, one of the most important things that we can do when we are interacting with someone who's struggling with sexuality or brokenness of any sort is not reduce them to their sexual issues because that's not all they are. We have to, like Jesus do, did, see them as a whole person. That's how he always sees us. Do you know who actually reduces us to our issues and calls us by our sins and struggles? It's the enemy. That's what he calls us. But Jesus never does. He never embraces that sort of thinking. Jesus treats all of us at all times as if the truest thing about us is that we are made in his image and we're dearly loved. He treats us how God sees us and the enemy treats us how we behave, right? That's the difference we see here. That's the first thing. Secondly, we obviously see this. Jesus' first priority with her was that she have faith in him. That is, in fact, all she talks about him is forgiveness of sins, faith in him, that she is saved. That was a higher priority to him than that she figure out her sexuality. Let me say that again. That, that she knew and that she trusted Jesus, that was more important to him than fixing her sexual issues. And we cannot forgive the, forget that. Now, that's not to say he, did, he had no concern about her sexuality, but it is to say that he prioritized faith in him as a higher issue than the sexual issues. What we know is this God who loves unconditionally, this God of mercy who saves by grace through faith. Like there's nothing better than that. And honestly, like we can't do this, but honestly, let's suppose that we could, like through our ministry, fix someone's sexuality and make them sexually pure, which we can't, but let's suppose that we could. If they do not experience the love of Jesus in a way that they put faith in him, they will just be sexually pure and lost, and it will be of no worth to them, because the difference biblically between a sexually pure and lost person and a sexually immoral and lost person, there is no difference. They're lost. What, what saves us and what finds us is faith in Jesus. That's why that's what he talked to about her or with her. So part of the calling here uh, is when we're interacting with sexually broken people, we have to, have to, have to keep first things first like Jesus did. And that means we're seeing them as whole people, not just seeing their sexuality, but also we're prioritizing faith in Jesus above any issue. Because it is above every issue, we understand, right? Second story, let's observe. Picture that person in your head who you find problematic because of some of their sexual issues and look at how Jesus treats sexually broken people. John 4, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So he, he talks to her about a handful of things, but remember, he changes the subject in verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. 
Now she changes the subject back on him. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now notice what Jesus brings up is not just sexual sin. He's also like the connotation of marriage in these days. There was some sexual mistreatment that she had suffered uh, because of her story, right? And so he brings that up. She changes the subject to something else because he knows she's a whole person. He's like, okay, we'll talk about what you want to talk about. But notice the effect of this moment in her life. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So again, we see Jesus prioritizing faith above him. It's above everything, right? That's how he's interacting with her. He reveals to her that he's the Messiah, but he's also treating her as a whole person. But we also see something else that is quite beautiful that he does real practically. Jesus wanted her to know that he understood what was going on with her. So Jesus like would have never taken a don't ask, don't tell approach. Jesus' approach was actually the opposite. Jesus' approach was tell me more. Like that, he was trying to draw her out. He was saying, I see you, tell me more about this. He was trying to draw her into her story so that they could talk about probably the point of greatest pain in her life. We have to remember what we talked about the first week, that God created us to be naked and without shame, right? And hiddenness was something that we came up with after we sinned. So sin and shame enters the picture and we start to become hidden. But God does not want that for us. That's why what Jesus does is so important to this woman because leaving hiddenness behind is the beginning of healing for all of us, right? So basically he's saying to her before she would ever wonder, I've seen your life, I've seen it. You're not hidden with me, I've seen it. I've seen what you're doing, I've seen what's been done to you and I'm still here. And I still want a relationship with you. So practically speaking, I would just say that is the posture that the people of Jesus need to embody with every sexually broken person we come across. It's a posture that says, you don't have to hide who you are. Not with me, at least. Because whatever's going on in your life, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm here for it. And if perfectly holy Jesus can do that, without worrying that he might inadvertently make her think sinning was okay, then I'm positive you and I can do that too, right? Sometimes we get trapped in this mindset where we think, man, I have to say something to that person about what I think is sinful in their life, but this might sound controversial. I just want to say, but do you? Do we? We don't always. I'll talk more about that in a second, but what if we just said to sexually sinful and broken people what Jesus says here, which is basically, we can talk about this. I'll be a safe place to talk about this with if you want to. And if you want to change the subject and talk about esoteric worship conversations, we'll talk about that, right? I'm not going anywhere. Now, sometimes when I talk like this, Bible scholars in the group start throwing verses at me. Like they'll take me over to 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul famously says, expel the immoral brother. 
And they'll say, but doesn't the Bible call us to call people out on sexual sin and to cut off relationships with people who are practicing sexual sin? And I don't have time to exegete the whole passage. I would love to. Maybe that's for another day. Um, But can I just say this about those sorts of verses and that one in particular? This was not Paul's solution with every issue of sexual sin. This was not even Paul's solution with most issues of sexual sin. This was Paul's solution on a specific instance of incest layered with sexual abuse that a man was doing and claiming that because of the grace of Jesus, it was okay for him. And Paul says, even the pagan uh, Gentiles would not tolerate this sort of behavior, so you shouldn't either, and you certainly shouldn't let him hide behind the gospel as the excuse for this behavior. Um, The point is just this, that Paul was not kicking out everyone who had any issue of sexuality or or sexual sin. That is the rare exception biblically, and if you want some more evidence of that, turn the page from 1 Corinthians 5 to 1 Corinthians 6, where he tells people, please stop uniting your body to prostitutes. So these people were sleeping with pagan prostitutes in in like temple worship that, that was being practiced in Corinth, and he just says, would you please stop that? God made you for more, and he doesn't kick those people out of the church. So this was the rare exception that Paul says, cut off a relationship with someone like this. And what he's saying is, there is relational boundaries for the church, but he's not saying every instance of immorality needs to be dealt with in this way. That's not the normative practice of God's people, and it wasn't Jesus' practice. Jesus doesn't cut off a relationship with people because of sexual immorality. Jesus' posture should be, I would say, the normative practice of Christianity. And if you want to talk more about those verses, I would love it because there's so much we can learn from that issue in Corinth. But what we should not learn is we, we just need to cut people off if they have any issue of sexual sin in their life because that would mean we would be alone, you know? What we see with Jesus with this woman is the opposite. He is drawing her story of sexual brokenness out. He's a safe place for her to talk about what is happening with her. Would you imagine what it would be like if as a people group, we Christians were thought of in that way? Like what if what people said about us was, man, I, those Christians are so easy to talk to. I just, I feel like I could talk to them about everything, uh, anything. I can talk to them about stuff that I'm ashamed to talk to other people about. But for them, I, like they don't always tell me what I want to hear, but man, I, they never look down on me, no matter what I tell them. I never feel like if I tell them the wrong thing, they'll take the relationship away. I never feel like that with them. And I just feel like they're so open to my story. That's what Jesus is modeling. And I think that's what we are to aspire to with people who are wrestling with sexual brokenness. Last story. Last story, best story. Think about that person uh, who is problematic for you. Let's just observe what Jesus does with sexually broken people. John 8, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. Said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard 
began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up. He asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, leave your life of sin. So again, lots of layers of injustice here. Uh, Jesus is interacting in the context of an unjust system to minister to this woman in her sexual brokenness, right? Um, He says two amazing things to her. First, he removes her shame. He says, neither do I condemn you. Even though I am without sin, I do not condemn you. And then he also calls her to something better. He says, leave your life of sin. He's calling her uh, to new life and to her best life. A couple of observations, though, I think need to be made. Uh, did, so those are the, that's the way the story ends, is he does those two things with her. But did you notice he did a few things before that moment? And all of those things are relevant in this story. Like, for instance, he saves her life. That's relevant, Right? He saves her life first. Secondly, he defends her in front of self-righteous people. And he uses her story as an opportunity to demonstrate to those self-righteous people that you're the same as she is. That's what he does. Thirdly, he brings dignity to her. I mean, these men, these evil, wicked men set out to humiliate this woman, make her stand in front of Jesus. And it's, it's so moving that, when they're all gone, he waits till they're all gone, and then he stands up and looks her in the eye. And she's made to stand there exposed, and he stands with her. So first he does those three things, then he removes her shame, then he calls her to a new life. So one question I would ask of us, if we want to do that last thing, you know, where he's like, stop sinning, which we understand what he's saying there is so much bigger and more beautiful than stop that sin. What he's saying is, you're not an adulterer. This is not who you are. Be who you are. Be your truest self as God created you to be. That's what he's saying. But, you know, leave your life of sin is kind of the phrase. But there's so much more to this. The connotation of it is so much bigger than that. So if we want to do that last part, if we want to talk to someone about their sexual brokenness and tell them to stop it, I think we need to ask this relevant question. Have we loved them in a way that gives us the credibility to speak? Because Jesus had. This is just a few moments of interaction, but he accomplished so much in those moments. And listen, if someone saves my life, defends me publicly, restores my dignity, well, I just might listen to anything they have to say, you know? But if someone has done nothing to love me, they just want to tell me what they think about me, that person would have very little chance of actually impacting me. And of course, that's true for all of us, right? So first, Jesus dramatically loves this woman. Second, he tells her he's not gonna condemn her. Third, he tells her God has something better for you than the sin. That order of operations might be the most relevant thing about this story, you know? Here's a real simple way we try to apply this here as a staff at Pulper Rock. Uh, when we're interacting with someone who's wrestling with a, a sexuality issue, it could be any issue really, but if we're in a relationship with someone who's struggling with uh, sexual brokenness in particular, here's how we would apply this. First, point them to Jesus. First, that's the first thing. Share the gospel in word or deed. Love them really well. Loving someone is part of sharing the gospel. The gospel is not a collection of ideas 
but it is a reality and a truth that is demonstrated in a relationship. So loving them is the first step. See them the way God sees them. It's created in the image of God in a way that will never end. Listen to them. Listening is actually part of sharing the gospel. Understand them. That's part of sharing the gospel. Tell them about God uh, and, and his mercy and grace, right? That's first. Second, encourage them to talk to God about their sexuality. We do that because we believe the Holy Spirit is the expert. We are not. The Holy Spirit is. And God is actually very interested in talking to each one of us. Uh, They don't have to be hidden with them. We believe that hiddenness is part of the issue for us in the area of sexuality, right? So talk to God openly and honestly, and we know what God's voice will sound like for them. It'll sound like the removal of shame and the call to a better life, to the truest self that God created them for. We know he's going to say that. We don't know how he will say that, but we know that what is most important is that they hear that from the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, thirdly, share how we see the issue. We, of course, can do that. I think the problem, it's just my opinion, you can disagree with this, but I think one of the reasons the world sometimes thinks of Christians as very judgmental is because we've just flipped the order, you know? We start with what should be last, and we're so eager to share the truth as we see it, as if that is what is going to change the human heart, that we do not patiently do the first two things. Or we do the first two things in a real shallow way because we're just so eager to get to number three. Let me suggest something again, a little controversial, you can disagree with this, but I would suggest if we never get to number three, that's okay. And I'm not saying that because I don't like offending people. I'm saying that because what we believe is that the Holy Spirit actually is quite competent at his job, right? So number two might be the most important thing after they find faith in Jesus is that they learn to listen to the Holy Spirit whose job is to convict of sin. You know what's real easy to disagree with? What Jonathan Cleveland thinks about sexuality. People walk away from that all the time. You know what's really hard to disagree with? When the Holy Spirit speaks to human spirit in a way that you feel it and you know it and that sticks with you for the rest of your life, you have to wrestle with that. And so if it's my voice that they're hearing, then they're going to have a, a real easy time moving on from that. But if it's the Holy Spirit who has spoken to them, that is the wrestling of their entire life for the rest of their life. Our job is not to do the job of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus gave us our job. We actually read this in the fall in the book of Acts. When Jesus left, he said to his people and to us by proxy, your job is to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth to be my witnesses, to make disciples of Jesus, not disciples of us. And if by God's grace someone comes to Jesus and puts faith in him, then they have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. And what is most important is they learn to listen to him. And if they're on that journey and we're walking with them, loving them, then of of course, of course we can talk openly and honestly about how we view issues of sexuality, of course. But the order really matters in relationships. What we see is there are priorities in the spiritual life and Jesus kept them. He kept first things first. We do not see in Jesus just someone walking around making comments about, here's how I think about that. And here's what, you know, no, he was very strategic relationally and we should be too. And our posture with others should demonstrate that knowing Jesus and having faith in him is the top priority by a mile. Now, I I know that doesn't answer every question, and remember I told you at the beginning I wasn't gonna, um, so it's not my goal. 
Uh, and I know that you're going to encounter situations just like I do in relationships where you may not know what to do or say. But let me tell you something that will make those relationships so much easier. If we would just do the things we know for sure Jesus would do and not let the things we don't know keep us from doing what we do know, our relationships get a lot easier. What we do know is this. Jesus saw sexually broken people as whole people. He loved them, saw them as more than their brokenness. He invited them to faith. He defended them and helped them. He spoke kindly with them about their brokenness. We know that. We know he did all of those things. And if we just embodied those things and just said, I'm going to become really competent at those things, I bet that would get us pretty far in life. And even if we come to something where we're like, man, I think God's calling me to go beyond those things and do a little bit more with this person. If we've been doing those things faithfully, then we will find that we have a relationship strong enough to carry the weight of whatever it is God is asking us to do with that other person. That's how we're called to relate to sexually broken people like us. This is what Jesus does with us. And he says, could you just treat them the way that I engage with you, period. Whatever they're doing, they're worthy of that because God has declared it over them. Now, I'm talking somewhat in the abstract here. I want to talk a little bit more specific. I know there's one area, one situation that I, I'm sure some of you have been thinking about this entire time um, because it's just your world, it's where you're living right now, and it's something I've observed for years from walking with a lot of families. There are few things as painful uh, to a parent's heart than realizing their child is struggling with some sort of sexual brokenness. Um, and that's, that could be the whole spectrum. It could be hey, my child is expressing their sexuality in a way that I don't think is healthy for them, or it could be my child has experienced sexual harm, and now they're dealing with the pain of that, trying to recover, or anything in between. I know it's easy to say, hey, just treat them like Jesus would. Um, that probably sounds really trite and shallow if you're a parent. The love we have for our kids can make that really complex and painful. One of the hardest things we will ever do as a parent is to trust God with our kids. Um, so I, I just want to say a few truths to parents uh, or people who want to be parents. Um, I think this stuff is useful for us all, but I want to apply it specifically to parents of children. Here's the first truth we've got to see. God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. He only has children. God does not love your kids because of you. He does not love your kids because they're your kids. He loves your kids because they're his kids, right? That's why he loves them. And I know this is hard to believe, but he actually loves them more than we do. And his love is more pure than ours is as parents. And so if we have a kid who is struggling with sexual brokenness, we have to understand God is totally invested in that kid, loving them, working in their life. We have to trust him with our kids. Um, I think this is true you can't help a person, like really help a person, if, uh, if you're not trusting God with them. And ultimately, what we know is every human sexual brokenness, it is sacred ground where we can encounter God. Um, that's true for us. That's true for our kids too. And I know all of us as parents, we, we look at our kids 
uh, you know, when they're pre-sexual and we're just like, gosh, I, I don't want them ever to experience sexual brokenness. But we don't get to choose that. Because of sin in the world, we don't get that choice. They will experience it just like we have because they're humans, just like we are. And God will be in the midst of it just like he is for us. And so part of what we need to do as parents is realize what I think Jesus realized. We need to say this to ourselves about our kids. We need to say this about anybody that we're interacting with who's sexually broken. Um, I, I think this is what Jesus saw when he looked out on us. He saw that every human will wrestle with their sexual brokenness. Every human. Every human. That means they will make lots of sexual mistakes. Every human. That means they will sin because they're sinners, every human. That means they will experience pain from others because they will love sinners. That's their only option. That means that they will experience self-inflicted pain because that's how shame works in all of us. Shame drives us to things that harm us. Just like we all carry our sexual brokenness, our kids will as well. And I think what we see in Jesus is that God is not panicked by that. And I think what we see in Jesus is that in his perfect love, God's goal is not behavior modification, it is heart transformation. And I have to be honest as a parent, sometimes my goal is just behavior modification. But God is not so short-sighted as to share that with me. His goal is heart transformation. Despite all the ways that all of us are broken, we're still seen by God, deeply loved by God, carry the image of God within us, and we have to trust that God with our kids and everyone else in our life. So let me put this list back on the screen. Here's what we know. Jesus sees sexually broken people as whole people. He loves them and sees them as more than their brokenness. He invites them to faith. He defends them and helps them. He speaks kindly with them about their brokenness. That is actually what Jesus has done with each one of us. And this is what Jesus calls us to do with others. I want to go back to the beginning and just ask you to think about that face again. Of that sexually broken person who you find problematic. You may not know exactly what to do with that person, but you can do that. Right? You may not know exactly what to say to that person, but with great humility, you can say those things. Right? Would you just commit to doing those things? And would you just tenaciously trust God with that person? They may not resolve every sexual issue they have on this earth, but we shouldn't put that on them because you and I aren't going to do that. Right? Remember what I said in week one. Um, this is important. The quest for sexual wholeness is not a quest for the right version of sexuality. That's not what this is about. Where we avoid mistakes, control ourselves, and become sexually pure. There are people in these three stories who thought that's what it was. It's the Pharisees, right? Those were the ones who had worked so hard to have the right version of sexuality, and in the process, they deceived themselves into thinking that they were pure, when in fact, they were extremely wicked. That's what these stories teach. And they never understood. They never understood that. They never understood that their sin nature taints everything that they do and that they needed Jesus as much as the adulterous woman or any of these other characters in these stories. They never saw that. 
And that's why we have to have a definition of sexual wholeness that's better. Real sexual wholeness is about rediscovering a secure relationship with Jesus and walking with him towards the beautiful life we were created for. We gotta deal with this truth. Either Jesus is our purity or we have to be 100% pure. That's what the Pharisees miss. There's no middle ground there. And uh, life is only found in him. What the Pharisees thought though is that they could find life in right behavior or in spiritual effort, but they forgot this truth that the sexual purity of the most righteous person who ever walked the face of the earth was still like filthy rags before a holy God. That that was their state. And they forgot that. And they missed the fact that they needed Jesus as much as anyone they were judging. Now, that's not to say that you can do nothing good with your sexuality just because it's tainted by sin. Of course you can do good things with your sexuality, even though it's tainted by sin. I just think we have to realize and what helps us stand with one another is this acknowledgement that it is always tainted by sin. I, uh, there's a great navigator, Lauren Sani, who I heard once said this, I don't know that I've ever had an entirely pure motive in my life. That's what it means to be human, right? And that doesn't mean there's nothing good about our sexuality, but it does mean all of the good works that we do are still somewhat tainted by our selfishness and pride in a way that we cannot separate them from, right? And that's what puts us all on the same ground all the time. Like none of us ever move on from that and get free from that. That is why faith in Jesus is the only righteousness God will ever accept. It's Jesus or nothing. That is our message. That is who we are as believers. And that is why we can love and be with people no matter what their sexual brokenness looks like. Because of that truth of the gospel. Because we understand we're just like them. They're just like us. They, just like us, long for this garden that we were created for. This perfection that we were made for. They have that longing inside of them. And just like us, it causes them to reach out for all sorts of things to get a taste of what they lost. They, just like us, long for that total intimate oneness with God and with somebody else that we were created for. And just like us, that longing and that ache in their heart makes them reach out again and again for things that will not satisfy it. And just like us, the only way they'll ever rediscover even a fraction of what we've lost is by faith in Jesus, learning to walk with them or with him where he leads us. That's our job, not to fix people, not to talk them into being more sexually pure, not to make pronouncements about what we think about their behavior, but to be with them, to bring them to Jesus, to keep first things first, to model the posture of Jesus and to love them the way that he is loving us. Would you picture the face of that person one more time? And can I just ask you this? Would you love them without reservation? Not because it's a good thing to do, but because God himself loved you without reservation. So would you just love them without reservation? And can we together pray for them? Lord, we lift up these people that we're picturing to you these friends, uh, these neighbors, these coworkers, these children, these parents, these family members, we, we bring them to you, Lord. And God, we actively trust you with them.
knowing that you know more what to do than we do. Would you help us to be like you and to love them like you've loved us? Would you help us to not overthink love? Would you help us to see them as whole people? Would you help us to defend them even when they condemn themselves? And would you help us to speak kindly to them in all their brokenness, in the ways that you speak kindly to us? Make us like you. Give us your posture. In Jesus' name, amen.